Well, as I've already mentioned, we come to a little bit of a difficult text this morning, maybe as difficult, if not more difficult, than the one in Hebrews 6 that everybody looks to as the difficult passage. Um, this one is, is very direct, very um, personal, and, and calls upon us to really examine ourselves and where we are in our walk with the Lord. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 to 31. This is the last major warning that the author gives in his letter to the Hebrews. We'll consider it this morning and consider how it uh, actually strengthens or ought to strengthen our faith and encourage us in our walk. Let me read it for us. Again, Hebrews 10, verses 26 to 31, the very living word of our living God. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So in the reading of God's holy, infallible, inerrant word, may he write it upon our hearts here this morning, and may it bear good fruit in our lives. Let me pray for us as we come before it this morning. Father in heaven, again we ask your blessing as we come before your word here, a difficult word. Help us to uh, understand it and apply it wisely in our lives. We ask that, as always, when your word goes out, that you would fulfill your own promise, that it does not return to you empty or void, but instead accomplishes all that you purpose for it. We ask that it would be successful in everything for which you have sent it out. For us, we pray that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit to open our eyes to see and our ears to hear all that you would have us learn from your word this morning, so that it can become a lamp to our feet, and a light to our path, so that we can walk in that light. We ask it as always, in Christ's holy and wonderful name. Amen. Well, the title of the sermon, Who's Afraid Of? Who's Afraid Of? And most of you probably are hearing the old Disney song from the Disney cartoon, Who's Afraid of the Big Bad Wolf? Three Little Pigs, the famous song. It's a taunting song. It's meant to be a taunting song. The pigs are taunting the wolf in that little cartoon. It's meant to communicate a very simple truth. We're not afraid of you, big bad wolf. We're not afraid of you. Who's afraid of the big bad wolf, this big bad menace? Now what's interesting is that song came out, the cartoon came out, and the song came out at at a time when America was suffering greatly, the Great Depression. And it is thought to have brought a great deal of comfort to people. Who's afraid of the big bad wolf? The big bad wolf being this big depression, this great struggle that we're going through as a country. And, and, and the words are kind of echoed in, in one of the famous phrases from FDR's first inaugural address 
The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. The only thing we have to fear is the big bad wolf. And who's afraid of the big bad wolf? It's interesting how in the 1930s, Americans kind of kept up a sort of British stiff upper lip, refused to be daunted, refused to be cowed, refused to let fear reign during these great hardships that they were experiencing. And yet, there were things that they should have been afraid of. Wisdom ought to have recognized those things. There was tremendous economic devastation from the Great Depression. Incredible hunger, homelessness. People suffered and they suffered gravely and deeply because of that economic downturn. There was the Dust Bowl and the destruction that it wreaked all over the Midwest and the great migration that it brought to places like Southern California. In Europe, there was the looming and growing threat of Nazi Germany. And in the East, there was the imperial designs of the Empire of Japan. We look at those now and see the, out, the outcome of that and think, man, they should have been afraid. And I think wise ones were. But this taunting little song, who's afraid of? Who's afraid of the big bad wolf? Who's afraid of Nazi Germany? Who's afraid of the Great Depression? Gave comfort and, and also maybe gave a blind eye to those legitimate reasons for fear. Well, that's the 1930s. Now we look at America, and many of us see something completely different. Fears abound. Everybody's afraid of everything. We give trigger warnings to people so they won't be offended. Their fears won't be triggered. We talk about microaggressions, little things that set people off. We need safe places where people can go to to supposedly find refuge from things that might make them feel bad, things they don't like. You've heard the word phobia. Phobia means fear. Our psychological phobias mount and grow more and more and more as the years pass. I'm not even sure anybody in the 1930s knew what a phobia was. Now we talk about them like they're commonplace. Claustrophobia, agoraphobia, fear of this, fear of that, fear of everything. Now, maybe in the 1930s, people didn't know enough and weren't aware enough of what was going on around them. Maybe they didn't fear enough as they should have. But arguably, in our time, we fear way too much. Quite a contrast in 80 or so years of of history in our country. Yet, even so, in those 80 or so years, there's one thing that remains constant. And not just in those 80 or so years, but throughout time, throughout history. One thing remains constant. One thing that every single person ought to fear and ought to know. That the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Scripture tells us this explicitly in almost exactly those words five times. Job 28.28, Psalm 111, verse 10, three times in Proverbs. Chapter 1, verse 7, chapter 9, verse 10, and chapter 15, verse 33. It says the same thing in a slightly different way in three more places. Isaiah 11, 12, uh, 11, 2, and Isaiah 33, 6. And then finally again in Micah 6, verse 9, right after Micah 6, 8. The wise person knows that wisdom begins with fear of the Lord. 
So in our fearful times today, the one thing that we should fear, and yet increasingly as we look around, we refuse to fear the Lord God himself. It's interesting how atheists and other non-believers poo-poo, they decry the idea of an angry God, a wrathful God who punishes sinners, if there is a God, and it's a big if for many of them. He's love and he's only love. Who wants a God who's angry and wrathful? Just this week, there came out a story about um, a British actor and comedian, Stephen Fry. You may know him if you watched uh, Jeeves and Wooster. He played Jeeves, the, the butler or, or uh, valet. Stephen Fry lashed out this week against the idea of a God who would create a world with evil in it calling God a maniac. Such a God is a maniac, says Stephen Fry. Because, after all, and he said this, evil is not our fault. Think about that. Turning everything around completely. Evil is not our fault. We didn't do it. And so the God who made an evil world must be crazy, must be a maniac. Anyone who can say those kinds of things, one, doesn't understand scripture, two, has no fear of God. That takes a special kind of person to say that kind of thing before the Lord God. But it's not just atheists. It's not just believers of other faiths who, who don't fear God or don't like the wrath of God. It's, it's Christians, too. We need to admit in our own circles, we like to limit. We, we, we like to back away from the idea of, of a wrathful, angry God. If we accept it at all, we tend to want to push him into the Old Testament. The Old Testament is God with his angry eyes on. The New Testament is the God of love, as we read from Ephesians earlier. Rich in mercy and great love for his people. And that's true. But as our passage today shows us, there's a, there are reasons, multiple reasons. Even in the New Testament... To fear God. And that fear is a good thing. Because again, fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now again, it's not the first time that we've seen these kinds of warnings in Hebrews. In chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, the author warns us not to neglect the salvation presented to us, spoken to us, preached by Jesus. How can we escape if we neglect it? And the question presumes punishment. You can't escape punishment if you neglect the salvation offered by Christ. The end of chapter 3 and getting into the beginning of chapter 4 reminds us of the rebellion against Moses that we read about earlier and the destruction of those rebels. and calls upon us to fear. They did not enter the rest promised by God through Moses. They died in the wilderness. calls upon us to fear lest we fail to hear the message of salvation and also fail to to enter into God's rest. Again, that implies punishment. Some are not going to rest. Some are going to be destroyed. Chapter 5, verse 11 to chapter 6, verse 8 is an extended warning against apostasy, against leaving the faith. And in that section when we were there, we talked about how apostasy is real and apostasy is dangerous and to be avoided at all costs. And now we come to this last 
big warning in this letter, chapter 10, verses 26 to 31, which concludes with one of the more daunting sentences in all of Scripture. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. A fearful thing. Why is this so? I want to look at that this morning. And also look at the wisdom that saves us from that awful condition. So simply, this is going to be a pretty simple, straightforward sermon, I think, this morning. I just want to walk through the passage and then talk about how fear leads to wisdom and wisdom to Jesus Christ himself. So let's just walk through the passage here this morning. Why does the author conclude that it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God? Well, he concludes it with good reason. Let's look back a little bit. Last week we (coughs) had this little recap from our author in verses 19 to 21 um, of what he'd been speaking of, and then he encouraged us, he called us, he exhorted us to have faith and hope and love, which are... Again, three themes that dominate the rest of this letter. And in that passage, (coughs) in verse 25, right before our passage, he mentions those who have fallen into the habit of not meeting together and how these people need to be encouraged and how we all need to encourage one another in all things as the day draws near. Again, this day here (coughs) is that Old Testament concept repeated in the New of the day of judgment, the second coming of Christ, when the world will be judged, some to eternal life and some to eternal punishment, as we read even in Revelation 20. And so this coming day mentioned in verse 25 is what motivates the author in 26 to 31 to warn us. The day is coming and it's drawing near. Not meeting together is a sin. It's a deliberate sin. Recall, we talked about last week, this refers both to public worship and to other gatherings for fellowship and instruction and worship and prayer. But the author here uses that deliberate sin to segue into all or any deliberate sins. And he says, if we go on deliberately sinning, after receiving knowledge of the truth, if we know what the truth is, and then we go on deliberately sinning, there no longer remains a sacrifice for our sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment, a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries in 26 and 27. <clears throat> Again, this calls to mind chapter 6, the warning against apostasy, where if you apostatize, apostatize and then return to faith, you're crucifying Christ all over again. That cannot be. It's, it's abominable, for one thing, but it, it makes no sense. The author's told us, he's said this repeatedly over and over again, Jesus was sacrificed once for all. It's done, it's complete, it's finished. The idea of doing the sacrifice again is dishonorable to Christ and his suffering personally. But more than that, it's an implicit claim that the first sacrifice wasn't enough. And it needs to be done again. That's abominable to the author. It's abominable to Paul. Go back and read Galatians, for example. So to know that truth and to reject it by deliberately continuing to sin 
means what the author is saying. It means that that sacrifice was not for you. And deliberate sin here means the idea of sinning against God with a high hand. And a high hand isn't just holding it up in you know, kind of the rebellion we see today, but it's a, it's, a, it's a word picture that means with all of our strength, kind of almost taking an oath of rebellion against God. I have raised my hand against the God <coughs> of the universe. So it's not just repeated sin. It's not the habit many of us have of falling into things that we don't like. This is deliberately, on purpose, going before God himself and saying, yeah, forget you, I'm going to sin. And of course, the language here echoes both Numbers 15, which talks about the punishment for such deliberate sins, and 16, which we read earlier, the example of Korah and all who followed after him in his foolish rebellion. A, a perfect example of a deliberate, high-handed sin against God and what God had commanded. The consequences are echoed. What happened to those people? The earth literally opened up and they were swallowed. They were consumed by the earth. Others were consumed by the fire that came from God. And that's the warning here. Adversaries against God. That's what he calls them. Fire that will consume the adversaries. Adversaries against God will be consumed. Eaten up. Destroyed by fire. Again, this idea is not limited to Hebrews. It's not limited to the Old Testament. It's there in Revelation, uh, chapter 20 that we read. Satan, death, Hades, and all whose names are not written in the book of life are thrown into the lake of fire where they are punished, where they are consumed forever and ever. And that idea of consume being similar to eating is something that, that is a good image to have in your head. Think of sores that eat away at your skin. Think of, think of things that eat away at your, at your joy, at your happiness, at your peace. We talk about these kinds of things. Think of that, about that to an unimaginable degree, forever and ever, being eaten away at, being consumed by a fire of destruction. That's what's coming for those who do not turn to Christ in repentance and faith. So those who deliberately sin against God do not experience the benefits of Christ's sacrificial death for sin. What does deliberate sin look like? besides some of the ideas already referenced. Well, the author, the author does an Old Testament thing that's kind of cool. He calls witnesses to the stand, and he makes reference to the Old Testament law, starting in verse 28. Anyone who sets aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now he's going to call witnesses to account in our case. And it heightens how much worse is going to happen to those who reject these witnesses or these evidences. Three evidences of deliberate sin that the author gives us in verse 29. The first evidence, the first witness, is someone who has spurned the Son of God. The second, someone who has profaned the blood of the covenant. And the third witness, someone who has outraged the Spirit of grace. 
interesting terms. Let's look at them each in turn. Spurning the Son of God, that's basically just rejecting Jesus. Rejecting who he is, <coughs> rejecting what he's done, rejecting everything the author has been talking about, about Jesus up to this point. We went through that list last week, and it's worth noting again. Someone who spurns Jesus rejects the idea that he speaks a better word than those who came before him. Someone who rejects Jesus rejects the things that the Father says about him, that he's his beloved son, that he sits at his right hand. Someone who spurns Jesus rejects the idea that everything and everyone is subject to Christ and he rules over all. Someone who spurns the Son of God rejects that Jesus is a prophet greater than Moses, rejects that he's the one who offers true rest, unlike Moses or unlike Joshua. Someone who spurns Jesus rejects the idea that he is the great high priest, not like the Old Testament priests. Someone who spurns the Son of God rejects the idea that he's the mediator of a better covenant. In fact, the promised new covenant. Someone who spurns the Son of God rejects the idea that Jesus is a better sacrifice than any Old Testament sacrifice. A sacrifice that accomplishes exactly everything that it intends, which is the salvation of, the redemption of the people of God. Once for all, and so it only had to be offered once. The first evidence that someone has spurned the Son of God, deliberately sinned against God, is rejecting these truths about Jesus. This is someone that has rejected, utterly rejected, the Christian faith and the truths of our faith. In fact, one commentator sees in the title used in verse 29, Son of God, evidence of a creedal declaration of faith by the early church, which it kind of was. To say that Jesus was the Son of God was a declaration of faith unlike anything that had gone before. <coughs> now, spurned here, someone who has spurned the Son of God, can also be translated trampled underfoot. And later editions of the ESV actually change it to that wording. So think of that image. Instead of what he called us to do last week, to draw near to God in faith, which ought to have the image of, of walking, of entering into the presence of God, instead of using our feet to draw near to God, we use them to trample Jesus underfoot. What a contrast the author is making. He doesn't just walk away from God. He tramples on the Son of God himself. That's the image that we should have in our mind. Think of the scenes that you might have seen on TV when Baghdad fell during the time of Saddam Hussein and how people went up to his statues, took their shoes off and pounded them with the bottom of their feet or just stomped on them. This is a very powerful image in many parts of the world. It's an image of disrespect, of rejection, of that person. That's the idea here. Someone who rejects Jesus is trampling him underfoot, showing disrespect. Again, not just walking away. Many of us can and do walk away from the faith for a period of time, and it might even be a long period of time, but that's not the idea here. The idea here isn't a wandering sheep who goes off and does things that the sheep shouldn't do. The idea is not a prodigal son who goes off to a foreign city and sins greatly. This is someone who doesn't just walk away or wander away. This is a person who is stamping on God himself, the Son of God, rejecting him. 
That's the first witness, the first evidence of sinning with a high hand, sinning deliberately. The second is, this is someone who has profaned the blood of the covenant. What blood is that? Well, it's Jesus' blood, spilled on the cross to pay for and to cover our sins and to make possible by grace and through faith, to make real the truths of, uh, of our faith so that one repents and believes in Jesus knows, as we saw in verses 1 to 10 of this chapter, that they are not guilty before God, knows that we are completely forgiven, as we saw in verses 11 to 18. The blood of Christ does this for his people, removes the guilt, forgives the sin. So profaning the blood is essentially treating it or acting as if it's not able to do what God says it's able to do. Or is it sufficient to do what God says it does? Which is, again, take away our guilt, cover up, and forgive our sins. This is why something like faith plus works is such a perniciously evil doctrine. It profanes the blood of Christ because it says the blood is not sufficient. I have to add my own works to it. That's why Paul's so angry in Galatians. Again, we're saying in effect that the blood of Jesus is worthless. Or, or, or at least is not enough. Well, that's an insult to God. That's an insult to what he has done for us. It's not able to make us holy. So again, the idea here, who has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, by which he was made holy. We're denying when we profane the blood that it actually makes us holy, that it actually removes our guilt, that it actually forgives our sins. And such a person has no hope for salvation, really has no desire for salvation, which again is in contrast to what the author was saying before in the previous paragraph, that we should hope without wavering. Such a person has no hope because they, they don't see the, the blood of Jesus as being sufficient. What a, what a foolish and terrible thing to do. The third witness... <coughs> Such a person has outraged the spirit of grace. In the plan of salvation, it's God the Father who plans the work of salvation. It's Jesus who actually does the work, obeying God's law for us, dying to pay for our sins, taking God's wrath in our place, rising to new life so that we can have the hope of rising to new life and living eternally with him one day. But it's the Spirit's job to take that plan, take that work, and apply it to us. It's the Spirit who makes us born again, who gives us new life. It's the Spirit who calls us to faith by the Word, through the witnessing of us as His people. It's the Spirit who gives us the gifts by which we serve. It's the Spirit that teaches us and disciples us and gives us the strength and ability to grow into the image of Christ in righteousness and knowledge and holiness. The Holy Spirit does this work. He does it in and through us. He does it in and through the Word of God. To go on deliberately sinning is to reject the call, the message, the work of the Holy Spirit, and to outrage the grace that he brings in applying salvation to God's people. What is the unforgivable sin against the Holy Spirit? To reject his work and his message. So the person who deliberately sins tramples on Jesus, 
says his blood isn't worth what God says it is, and rejects the message from the Holy Spirit of salvation. Those three evidences make a person in danger of fiery punishment. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God, profaned the blood of the covenant, and has outraged the Spirit? They will be consumed by a fury of fire because they will be counted as adversaries of God. So again, here's a passage like Hebrews 6 that is not about, this is not a passage about those who struggle with sin. Because we all struggle with sin. We all are frustrated by our sin. We can all relate to what Paul writes about in Romans 7. That we do things we know we shouldn't. And we don't do the things that we know that we should. That's not what this passage is about. Those people who are struggling. And, and may even stray or wander from the faith for long periods of time. Even years. There was a great example in one of the commentaries I read by a, a PCA pastor named Rick Phillips. About a woman that he and his wife had gotten to know when she was in college. A believer who moved away, started falling into sin, tried to repent and come back, but then fell into sin again and ultimately decided to reject her faith and embrace atheism. And after many years, after a wedding uh, of some uh, a mutual friend, uh, the pastor had a chance to talk to her and asked her a very interesting question. Have you renounced Jesus Christ? In other words... Is he not the Son of God to you? Did he not die on the cross for sinners? Do you reject this? And he says that in the end she just couldn't do it. Her philosophy couldn't help her. Her sins were not enough to drag her down. She could not, in the end, reject Christ. Repented, and as of the time he wrote the commentary, was actively serving and growing in a Christian church. This passage isn't about those kinds of people. So we need to be careful as we judge others who stray and wander from the faith. We, we don't always know what's really going on in the heart and mind of those people. But this passage is about those who seem to be of the faith, who, as the author says, receive knowledge of the truth. They understand it. Intellectually, they get it. They know what's being taught. But the difference here is they utterly, outright, deliberately reject it. They reject Jesus. They renounce him, his sacrifice, and the salvation offered through the Holy Spirit. So again, if under the old covenant people died without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses, how much more in the newer, better covenant will those be in danger of eternal death, of eternal punishment, who reject Jesus in such deliberate and clear ways. The author finishes by quoting from a couple Psalms, 50 verse 4 and 135 verse 14, to remind us first about the vengeance of God. I will repay, says the Lord. Vengeance is mine, but also a reminder that the Lord will judge his people. And then that verse 31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living of the living God. The author's saying, 
Go back and read, as we did this morning, about what happened to Korah and his followers. Take a look at what is promised in the judgment before God's great white throne. See what will happen to Satan, to death, to Hades, and to all those who reject Jesus and his salvation. Consumed, fire, eternal wrath. So that's the warning. Don't go there. Don't fall into habits that might take you down that path ultimately. Do not reject God's offer of salvation. He offers it freely. Receive it. Turn from your sins and believe in Christ and follow him. And so we get to the idea of wisdom. This is wisdom. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fear of punishment can lead us on the path to wisdom. Because this is the kind of wisdom that sees the danger, recognizes the danger, and is properly Afraid of it. We should be afraid of the judgment of God. And if we're really afraid of it, if we really understand what it is, then that motivates us in wisdom to look for a solution. To realize we can't get there on our own, by our own efforts, by our own works. We can't pay for a solution. We can't buy a solution. We have to look to God's solution, which is, again, Christ Jesus given to us as a free gift. So fear of God, in the end, for God's people, is wisdom. And wisdom is good because it leads us to Jesus. God is going to punish all evildoers, except those who repent of their evil and believe in Christ. (coughs) If fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, Jesus, I would argue, is the end of wisdom. We see things like this things that relate to this in, for example, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul argues very strongly, our wisdom is not the wisdom of the world. Our wisdom is foolishness, in fact, to the world. But our wisdom is Jesus. Chapter 1, verse 24. Christ, says Paul, is the power of God and the wisdom of God. A few verses later, in verse 30, we are in Christ Jesus, he says, who became to us wisdom from God. Righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Christ is wisdom to us. You want wisdom? You're only going to find it in Christ. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of of the living God. Fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Christ is the goal, the end, the point of wisdom. So who's afraid of God? Anybody who has wisdom is afraid of God. Who's not afraid of God? Unfortunately, only a fool. Fear leads to wisdom. Wisdom leads to Jesus, to repentance and faith in him. And this ultimately leads, as the author has been telling us, into the very presence of God, where we are not guilty, where all of our sins are forgiven, where we have the right to draw near to God with confidence, to that same God who is now our Father, who loves us and whom we love in return. The God that we feared has become the God that we love. Think about that. Some people read about Jesus' first miracle in Cana, turning water into wine. Pretty incredible. Pretty amazing. Never seen it done by anybody else. 
Never will see it done by anybody else. But even more amazing than that, Jesus turns fear into love. That's powerful. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we are thankful that we can call you our Father. We are thankful that before we could love you, you first loved us. And in fact, you were rich in mercy and abounding in love toward us while we were still dead in our trespasses and sins. We thank you for making us alive in Christ by the power of your Spirit, for calling us to yourself, for giving us true wisdom from above, for giving us Christ. Lead us in Christ. Lead us by the power of your Spirit. Help us to know and understand and become truly wise in Christ our Savior. We ask it in his precious, wonderful, holy, and matchless name. Amen.